Please join me for a word of prayer. Oh God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. song is from Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, we hung up our lyres, for our captors required songs of us saying, sing us one of your songs of Zion. Worship has always been at the heart of the people of God. It's been one of our primary responsibilities. And here in that song you heard the The story of someone deprived of worship, the people of God taken into captivity, and one of the captors, uh, one of the soldiers of Babylon, poking and prodding uh, the people of God, saying, hey, sing us one of those songs that you used to sing, one of the songs of Zion. The worshiper has uh, the experience of being deprived of the ability to worship, being mocked for his worship, and uh, this morning, I want to think with you about the priority of worship. Here, we just had the, heard of the experience of one deprived, and I want to think with you about the primacy of worship for the people of God. I don't think there's anything more important for the life of an individual follower of Christ. I don't think there's anything more important for the corporate body of Christ than our worship 
Yes, a church does other things, and a church should do other things, but worship is a little bit like the narrow point of an hourglass. Everything flows to it, and everything flows from it. For most of us, worship is a a matter of, of of convenience, not absolute convenience, but sometimes our worship, our participation in worship is governed by, is, is it convenient? Are we able to make it there? Does it fit our schedule? Our assessment of worship is sometimes based upon our preference. What do we like? Is it contemporary or traditional? Is it part of the tradition that we know or don't know? Is it Anglican worship, Presbyterian, Baptist worship? Those are the measurements by which we... we, we uh, value worship. And I want to take a moment this morning and think of one of the most stirring scenes of worship that's included for us in the Bible. This passage out of the book of 2 Chronicles, it tells one of the high points of the people of God as they gather for worship. And I want to think with you about what biblical worship is. I think it sets an inspiring example for us, something for us to hope for, something for us to long for. Turn with me. I'm going to make a few observations about biblical worship. The first thing I know in this passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, the first thing I note about worship is that it is congregational worship. The normal pattern of the people God is they gather together. Certainly you have many occasions of people gathering for prayer, and, or not gathering, for uh, worshiping God in private. In the quietness of their heart, in the solitude of their home, absolutely. But the normal pattern for worship for the people of God is congregational. Note the repetition of the word all. Then Solomon assembled all the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the house of the fathers, houses of the people of Israel, verse 3, and all the men of Israel, and verse 4, and all the elders. It was everybody together. Worship is a congregational experience. It's meant to be participated in with one another. There's a great passage in the book of Isaiah when we're given a glimpse into the throne room of God. And we're told that the angels there are worshiping, worshiping God. And it says, the angels say not to God, but to one another. They say, holy, 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 as if they're looking at God and telling one another, look, do you see what I see? Do you see the character, the qualities, the beauty of God? Your worship, congregational worship, isn't solely for you, but it's for those around you. Because worship is congregational, it is also unifying. Look at verse, I think it's verse 11. They gathered together without regards to their division. So there was some divisions, maybe by uh, tribe or by class. Who knows on what basis the divisions were made. But there was some basis of divisions within uh, the people of Israel, but not here. As they gathered together, those divisions faded away. Because worship is congregational and it involves all of us, it breaks down barriers. There was an article written several years ago in The Atlantic called Losing Faith. And it it describes both the decrease in public worship and the increase of social strife. The author said, this is odd for us because back in the 80s, we imagined if we could just get over these culture wars, then we could all get along with a lot more peace but not the case, as worship has ceased to be a unifying principle in the life of our culture, so social strife has increased. Do you see the principle as people gather together in worship, those divisions which have uh, can d- separate fade away? First principle about biblical worship it is that it is fundamentally congregational. 
You are needed here, and I want to encourage you, as Sunday mornings become less and less of a sacred time. You know, when I was growing up, you went to church simply because there was nothing else to do. What are you going to do on Sunday morning? That's not the case anymore. Sunday morning requires commitment, and for us now, Sunday afternoon requires commitment too. And I want to encourage you that congregational worship is, the, is a vital aspect. It's not some accidental addition. No, you are meant to be together all the people of God, all the elders. And when we do, that has a phenomenal way of breaking down barriers which can divide. So that's the first point. Congregational worship is a normal pattern. Second, they approach God with reverence. Now, you don't find that word, but so I want to draw out one of these stories that may sound... Some of these stories, if we read these old, long passages in the Old Testament, there's a lot that simply doesn't make sense to us. We think, hmm, why would the author include that? We have one such example when we hear about the, uh, the ark. Uh, verse 8 and 9. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, the ark being that uh, uh, chest, that, that, that holy place where some of the artifacts of the people of God were placed. And uh, so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And now in verse 9. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, though they could not be seen from outside, and they're there to this day. Why the detail? Why, why does the author want to tell us about the poles upon which the ark were carried? That were, they were really big, really long. There seems to be a needless detail, doesn't it? Well, actually, there's, those poles have a little bit of a history. God, for some reason, was very particular about how his ark was to be carried. For reasons unknown to us, he wanted God's ark carried on poles. He says so in Exodus chapter 25. Very explicit instructions. When you carry the ark, put it on a pole. There's one occasion when God's people kind of ignored that. They said, ah, who cares? We'll just carry the whole ark any old way we want to. And so they put the ark on a cart. Bad move because that cart hit a bump. Cart hit a bump. Uh, the cart stumbled. The ark fell. And someone, poor guy named Uzzah, reached out grabbed the ark to stable it, and that's the last we heard of Uzzah. And so here, when they bring the ark into the, into the place of worship, we're going to get poles. Not just any old poles, but we're going to get big poles, long poles, because God apparently cares how he's approached. They approach God carefully. They approach him with reverence. Now, reverence is just not a high priority for us today. There's a song, uh, I don't know if it, it, when it was written, and I think it was in my college years, sometime in the mid-90s, and some singer sang and suggested that what if God was one of us, just a stranger on a bus, just a slob like one of us? What if, what if God wasn't just up there, but he was down here with us? Wouldn't that be kind of nice? Well, that God that's described as one of us, just a stranger on a bus, is not the God that's portrayed in the Bible, who is holy, holy, different, to be approached with reverence and fear. One of my favorite stories from our history is a story of Bishop Latimer, one of the English reformers. King Henry VIII was a, a member of his church, and King Henry VIII, if you know anything about him, was not known for his temperance. Very volatile character. He had to be careful around King Henry, especially if you were his wife. 
apparently Bishop Latimer was preaching one day and he saw King Henry sitting in the congregation and he said, Bishop Latimer approached the pulpit and said, be careful, Latimer, for the king is here. And gave a pause for a rhetorical flourish and then approached the pulpit again and said, be careful, Latimer, for the king of kings is here. That is one example of someone who reckoned with the holiness of God. Take heed. Take heed. God is here. The king is here. They approach God reverently. I think it's always a warning for me. I know something's a little bit off in me when I begin to treat holy things without the concern they deserve. When my attitude towards communion becomes a little bit casual, I don't think that's a good indicator of my spiritual health. Be very careful. Be very careful when we approach holy things with flippancy. No. God here was approached reverently, carefully. Lest we think it was all reverence and piety and somberness, that was not the case at all because they approached God enthusiastically. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? A few times, a few stories in the Old Testament where I just, I would have loved to have been there. And this is one of those, the, uh, the number of instruments uh, singing in unison with trumpeters and singers and lyres and 120 uh, priests whose job was to make themselves heard. They worshipped musically and enthusiastically. Music is one of the great contributions of the people of God, whether it's the, the ancient um, chants from the, from the early church or those robust hymns of the Reformation or the, the impassioned gospels and spirituals or some of the more contemporary hymns of our day. God's people have always been known to sing. Singing, it would be strange to have the people of God gather for worship and not a peep. We're made to sing to God. As St. Augustine was once pondered the question, why do we sing? And his response was, we sing because lovers always sing. There's a song that Kermit the Frog made famous. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? There's really not many songs about rainbows. There's only one that I know of, but there's thousands of songs about love. Love inspires song. And because we believe God is love and he loves us and he pours his love into our hearts, there is something integral about singing and Christian worship. Another uh, leader in the church said, what does the church have to offer the world aside from the lives of her saints and the music that has been born in her bosom? Singing, enthusiastic worship is a natural part of the worship of God. Further, I note here that their worship was moral worship. Verse 11, the priests came out of the holy place and they consecrated themselves. Consecrated, let's focus on that word just a moment. What is that word? It probably had some sort of liturgical meaning, maybe a, a liturgical act, a sacramental act. They consecrated themselves. 
prepared for worship. Maybe they washed their hands. Maybe you've seen someone do that around the whole, uh, before preparing communion. They wash their hands and prepare themselves. I imagine this also had to do with their moral preparation. They just didn't consecrate themselves liturgically, but they consecrate, they prepared themselves morally. They repented of their sins. They made restitutions where there was wrong. Jesus was well in line with the Old Testament when he said, if you have a, a, a problem with a neighbor and you're in worship, go, settle accounts with them and do it quickly. Moral worship. It's one of the consistent critiques of the prophets that the worship of the people of God lacked consistency. What they sang on Sunday, or I guess in that case Saturday, what they sang on, in their worship services did not match what they did in their home. It did not match how they behaved at work. Their worship lacked consistency. It lacked authenticity, but not so here. They consecrated themselves. They set themselves apart for worship. Finally, we've thought that we've observed that worship, biblical worship, is congregational worship. We've observed that biblical worship is careful worship, reverent worship. We've observed that biblical worship is enthusiastic and joyful worship filled with song. We've observed that biblical worship is moral worship. They consecrated themselves. And now finally, let's observe the point of worship. Their worship was profoundly spiritual. The house of the Lord was filled with the cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Because the glory of the Lord filled the house. There's a proverb that says, In all you're getting, don't forget to get wisdom. I'd like to adapt that for the purposes of this, this uh, sermon. In all you're getting, don't forget to get God. That's what they got. They got God. In all you're getting, why do we gather as the people of God? Why do we sing? Why do we listen? Why, why are we here? It's for no other reason than what they experienced. That is to get God. And God was present there in a palpable sense so that the people in the temple could not stand the, the weight of God or the glory of God. Those two are interchangeable phrases. The weight and the glory of God fell on the people of God so that they could not understand, they could not even stand. And I imagine when they had that sensation of God mattering, of the importance, of the, the, the weightiness of God, nothing else mattered. All those cares they carried in were gone. All the sadness they carried, gone. All their frustrations with life, gone. I imagine, like if you have a glass of water, and you drop a rock into it, and that rock dispels everything else. So the weightiness of God dispelled everything else. And all you're getting, don't forget to get God. And that's what they got. And that's why we gather here. 
Let me draw a few practical conclusions. This biblical worship that we've observed, congregational worship, reverent worship, moral worship, enthusiastic worship, profoundly spiritual worship, we may think, what's the big deal? Why is worship so important? Why is it so important that a half hour and a half on Sunday morning, a couple of songs in a sermon? I think that worship is a little bit like a canary in the coal mine. And when our worship is healthy, other aspects of our life and faith are healthy. When our worship is kind of lackluster and half-hearted or dull, when we just don't care, that's usually an indicator that there are other aspects of my life and faith that are unhealthy. So we need to recapture a biblical vision of worship, a vision of worship which includes the faithful reading and preaching of God's word, a vision which includes the reverent and expectant administration of the Lord's Supper, Jesus, ready to make himself known to us in the breaking of the bread and eager to give himself to us, a vision of worship which includes the enthusiastic offerings of our praise and thanksgiving and music and song, a vision of worship which is expressed not only on church on Sunday in what we sing, but it is expressed on Monday in our office and our home by what we do. A vision of worship for worship that anticipates what they experience, that And what did they experience? That God is present, and he is present among us. Recall, as we have observed, this passage, Book of Chronicles, was written to a people. It's the last book written in the Bible. It's written to a people who have uh, been previously exiled. They're now coming back to their homeland. And this book is written to give them a hope. It's given, given to, written to give them a vision of the possible future. It's given to inspire them to dream. It's, it's written to tell t- the tired people of God that what was true in the past can and will be true in the future. Sometimes I allow myself to dream of what it will be like when we finally have a permanent home for our church. That would be a great moment. And there's a beautiful service in our Anglican church worship, the consecration of a place for worship. And the bishop stands at the back of the door. He gets his staff, knocks on the door, boom, boom, boom. He says, let the doors of the church be opened. And then God's people file behind him in a song, It's an inspiring vision. And this vision was written for the same reason. It was written to give the people of God beleaguered and tired. It was written to give them hope. That God was faithful in the past. He met his people in worship in the past. And he will do so again. It's a distant hope, but a powerful hope for them and for us as well. So let's pray that God would give us A vision for worship, congregational, enthusiastic, deeply spiritual. May we have that experience that Jacob had. Jacob who said, surely God was present in this place, yet I was unaware. That's the point of worship.